Good afternoon. My name is John Samples. I'm director of the Center for Representative Government here at the Cato Institute. I'd like to thank each one of you for coming out on this beautiful fall afternoon to discuss uh, the results backwards and forwards for the election 2006. Um, I'm going to introduce in time each one of our speakers. We have a distinguished panel with extensive knowledge of uh, voting, voting patterns, and elections. Uh, I do a brief introduction for myself before we go into this. Uh, I and Michael McDonald, one of our panelists, have edited a volume called The Marketplace of Democracy, Electoral Competition in American Politics, a joint effort between the Cato Institute and the Brookings Institution. Uh, it's available for sale outside. It's on a number of the issues uh, that are, will be discussed today. Uh, please take a look at it. It's very interesting, and we'll explain uh, why, in fact, what looks like a very competitive election doesn't uh, refute all that much our concerns about electoral competition today. I'm also the author of The Fallacy of Campaign Finance Reform, which is a new book out with the University of Chicago Press, which also bears on electoral issues and I think is also for sale today. Um, I will turn each to uh, each of our speakers in turn uh, for a speech of about 15 minutes. Uh, we should have about a half hour or so as we go down the line for discussion, for questions and answers from you. So we'll look forward to that. And thereafter, about 1.30 or so, we should have uh, lunch upstairs. Uh, election 2006 is now looking like one of the remarkable of elections of the last generation or two in the United States. Not only was it an election where the President of the United States went into it uh, with as the governing party, and he went into it with a approval rating that was the lowest of any president for 60 years, but it's also one that has generated, of course, as we know now, a change in control of both uh, houses of Congress. Today we have with us uh, three uh, people to discuss uh, many aspects of this election 2006, what happened, why it happened, and what may well uh, portend for the future. Our first uh, speaker will be Lewis Jacobson. Lou is the deputy editor of Roll Call, where he has covered uh, state legislatures, ballot initiatives, and other issues for many years. He writes the column out there also for Roll Call magazine. He handicaps the 50 state legislatures for the Rothenberg Political Report, well-known and well-cited, well-sourced uh, uh, political newsletter. And he is a principal contributing editor of that essential piece of work for all of us who work in Washington and think about congressional races, uh, the Almanac of American Politics. Lou Jacobson. Thank you. Hello. Oh, up there, fine. Yes. Sorry. That's fine. I uh, thought I'd start out today by talking uh, a little bit about a column I wrote today on virtually no sleep. So do forgive me if there are some errors in it, um, which takes kind of a quick look uh, not just at the congressional uh, contest, but also at the uh, state contest governorships and the state legislature's ballot initiatives. Um, and uh, it's sort of a quick, quick take, but I, but I think it gives a little bit fuller context uh, than, than uh, some, some of the uh, talk uh, so far about the election has, uh, has taken because um, folks in D.C. really focus on Congress. And uh, I, I definitely want to talk about Congress, but I also do want to talk about politics in the states. Um, 
I gave uh, in this column, actually shortly before the election, 10 different factors to look at to gauge how significant a Democratic wave it would be. Um, and uh, I sort of had a point system, and then at the end you total up all the points and you tell how big a wave it is. Um, I guess I'll, I'll fast forward to, 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 uh, to uh, the end of the story here. It actually was a strong Democratic wave. Not a massive Democratic wave, but still pr- pretty close to that um, in terms of its depth and its reach. Um, in terms of the congressional end of things, uh, one question I asked was how many New England Republicans would survive the election? Frankly, not many. We knew that there were going to be six who were not in serious danger or who were not actually up. Uh, but only two either uh, uh, senators, congressmen, or governors uh, who were up in a fairly competitive race survived. Christopher Shays of Connecticut in the House and uh, Donald Carcieri, who is the governor of Rhode Island. Five others lost. Senator Lincoln Chafee, Charles Bass in the House, uh, um, Jeb, uh, Jeb Bradley in the House, both uh, in the state of New Hampshire, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, and then Nancy Johnson in Connecticut and uh, Kerry Healy, who was trying to save Mitt Romney's governorship in Massachusetts. All those folks went down. It looks like Rob Sibbins also in the House, Connecticut Republican. Uh, he's trailing slightly. There might be a recount there. But that was a pretty strong factor for, for the uh, de- Democrats. Something else I looked at was how willing voters were to ticket split. Um, I looked at the four states in which there was a competitive Senate and gubernatorial race on the same day and try to see if there's any um, push by voters to, to, to choose the same party for both. No state went and chose two GOP candidates of those four. Two chose uh, de- Democrats in both cases, Ohio, Sherrod Brown, Ted Strickland, both succeeded. Um, and in the state of Maryland, uh, um, the Senate uh, candidate Ben Cardin won and the gubernatorial candidate Michael O'Malley won. Uh, but there actually were two states in which the, uh, uh, the uh, voters did split. Uh, in the state of Rhode Island, Carcieri won even as Chafee was losing, even though both are very moderate uh, 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 folks. And, um, and in the state of Minnesota, the uh, governor, Mike Hatch, who actually uh, was leading in most polls, he very, very narrowly lost to the incumbent governor, who is a Republican, um, even though the Senate candidate for the Democrats won by, I think, 15, 20 points. Um, so that was sort of a split, split call for me. Um, third factor was, did the Democrats lose any seats in the House? Uh, uh, in other words, did, were there sitting Democrats who lost their seats? There's one race that's still uh, not officially called yet, John Barrow in Georgia. Um, he, he is currently leading, so he's expected to win. Uh, but um, if that deed holds, then they, they will not have lost a single incumbent, which is actually the same as what happened in 1994 with the GOP. Um, fourth factor was um, the districts which voted for John Kerry in 2004, who were represented by a GOP member of, of the House. Um, and uh, only six, uh, there are only six left, basically. Uh, there, uh, there are three contexts which are still still, still uh, to be decided, but um, six seats are held by GOP members where the district was won by John Kerry, but nine flipped yesterday. Um, uh, two in Pennsylvania, one in Florida, one in Colorado, one in Iowa, or sorry, two actually in Iowa. 
Um, so that was a fairly strong showing again for the Democrats. Um, number five is how far ahead of the president's 2004 vote totals were the GOP Senate candidates in the red states. In other words, uh, or sorry, G- GOP candidates in the blue states. Um, and basically, I asked the same question on the flip side, too. Um, and this was a fairly interesting question because basically what I found is that virtually all of the GOP candidates in blue states did much worse, or certainly several points worse, in some cases much worse than Bush did just two years ago. That was a significant uh, shift. And, and actually, one, if you look at um, the 2004 election and ask the same question about the, uh, the, uh, the Senate candidates for the Democrats who ran that year and how they, they uh, did compared to John Kerry um, in the red states, um, many of them did much better than John Kerry did, even though they, they all lost. Most of them did two to six or seven points above what John Kerry did in their state. It was not the case uh, for the GOP candidates in the blue states this time. Flip side of that, the, uh, the um, folks who ran for Senate for, for the Democrats did quite well in the red states and, and did much better for, uh, compared to the 2004 Kerry numbers. John Tester ran 10 points ahead in terms of Montana. Sherrod Brown did uh, seven points better than John Kerry did in 2004. Jim Webb, five points better. Harold Ford, five points better. Claire, uh, uh, sorry, McCaskill, four points ahead. Um, so in terms of the Senate candidates, they uh, did uh, did uh, quite well for the Democrats and quite poorly, actually, for the GOP. Um, point number seven, uh, I chose eight different candidates for the, for the Democrats who were weakened in some way, usually by scandal, in some cases just because they were not, not all that popular because of policy decisions they'd made, um, and ask, will these guys win, even though they're fairly unpopular, just because of Democrats, essentially, on a Democratic wave day? In fact, all eight won. Uh, not a single one was bounced from office, even though, for instance, Rob Blagojevich, the gover- governor of the state of Illinois, his top fundraiser has, uh, is uh, currently under indictment. Um, there's been a lot of questions raised about corruption in his administration. He won fairly easily against a fairly weak GOP candidate, but it was a competitive race. Um, and s- several other ca- candidates uh, for, for the, the uh, de- Democrats really were able to survive on a day like this, in some cases fairly easily, even though they, they had scandal problems. Um, I looked at which ballot initiatives uh, – passed um, on the same-sex marriage issue and on the minimum wage issue. All six of the minimum wage uh, passed. Uh, most, most of them, with one exception, Colorado, did it by a very large margin. Um, and same-sex marriage actually appears to have failed for the first time in the state of Arizona, fairly narrowly, but it did fail. And it was very close in South Dakota. It took, it took a long time to actually call it. I think it was only about a two-point difference um, in the end. Um, so that was a Fairly strong showing for for the sort of for the liberal side, if not not explicitly the uh, the uh, de- democratic side. Um, state legislatures. I had a whole list of state legislatures which uh, were deemed to be competitive, um, and the final result was uh, that nine chambers, a, actually a total of, te- of uh, twelve chambers, flipped uh, yesterday or uh, on Tuesday. Nine flipped to the democratic side, uh, and three either went to the GOP or went from a Democratic status to a tied status. Um, very strong day for the Democrats on state level, and, and, and frankly, I was kind of surprised uh, 
because going into this election, my sense had been that the national elections really shouldn't have any direct influence on the, the state house, state senate, and even the governor's races because they're very different issue sets. People who are running for governor or for state rep or for state senator have no direct influence on foreign policy. So, uh, uh, so in the past, particularly in 2002, is a good example of an election where there were no national trends which, uh, 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 which directly influenced how those sorts of races shook out. In 2002, you saw uh, a decent amount of voter anger, but generally against the incumbent party in the state. And so you saw lots of, cha- of uh, governors um, in very red states becoming uh, the uh, vo- voters turned to a Democratic governor and vice versa. There, um, some, it was like I think 18 of 36, I think, may have flip parties that year, uh, which was quite quite striking, but it was all lo- localized, and it, it didn't have to do with any kind of national trends. But there does appear to be a linkage between how well the, uh, uh, the uh, Democrats did on the state legislature and the gubernatorial level this time uh, because it was such a national wave. And that, that's a fairly new phenomenon as far as I can tell. Um, and finally... Uh, and oh, a final point about the uh, the uh, state houses and senates. Um, the state of New Hampshire was really quite striking. Uh, usually, in the past three cycles since I've been been tracking these, there's one chamber which no one expects to flip, and it does. And in that case, uh, on Tuesday, it was the state of New Hampshire, the state house. Um, it's a 400 seat body. It's the third largest. A legislature in the English-speaking world after Congress and the British Parliament. Uh, and the Democrats were down by something like 70 s- seats or something. They, f- they totally turned it around and uh, t- took control. No one expected that. It was a great day for, for the Democrats in the state of New Hampshire. They had they, uh, uh, they flipped both chambers of the state. Uh, the, uh, they uh, flipped, flipped the uh, state, state House and State Senate. They flipped two congressional seats. The first time Democrats have held two seats in the state since 1912, I think, or 1916. Um, and the governor, seeking a second term, got about 75 percent of the vote. Um, final uh, question was uh, state attorney generals. There were about 10 races that were deemed to be somewhat competitive um, between the two parties, in which you had a decent candidate for both sides. Um, and the Democrats of those 10 won eight. Um, so even at the statewide level, jobs having nothing to do with the national political uh, field, in competitive races, the uh, de- Democrats won quite a bit of those. So I think I'll stop there. Okay. Thanks much, Lou. Um, our next uh, panelist will be my uh, project uh, co-worker, Michael McDonald. Uh, Mike is Assistant Professor of Government and Politics in the Department of Public and International Affairs at George Mason University. He's currently a visiting fellow at Brookings Institution also. He received his Ph.D. in political science from the University of California at San Diego. On the practical side, uh, Mike, as I should mention, published very widely on statistical methods and also in, in the academic literature on a variety of issues. On the practical side of politics, he's worked for the National Exit Poll Organization, consulted to the U.S. Election Assistance Commission, served on campaign staff for state legislative campaigns in California and Virginia, thereby reviving a uh, somewhat lost art of political scientists actually being involved in politics and knowing something about it. Uh, He's also worked for national polling firms and has worked as a registering consultant in Alaska, Arizona, California, Michigan, and New York 
and worked as a media consultant for the networks and published widely in leading newspapers. And I should also say uh, Mike and I have had, uh, in working on this project, an excellent relationship in a country that's uh, polarized. You might have thought that Brookings and Cato or someone drawn from Brookings and Cato would also be polarized. But I don't even think we've had much in the way of disagreements over a year and a half now. We both recognize, and as do both institutions, that there's uh, a problem about uh, electoral competition in this country. And Mike's going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, But I'd like to welcome Mike McDonald. And it has been quite a pleasure working with John as well and the the staff at Cato. Uh, This is the culmination, I guess, of our project because this will be the last public event that we do. And um, uh, I just want to thank everyone for showing up and and everybody who's been participating all throughout the process. And uh, the book itself uh, has uh, quite a few contributing authors from, uh, yet again, across the political spectrum uh, in terms of academia. And uh, we had some Democrats and Republicans, conservatives, uh, liberals who who participated in that as well. So it's been a real bipartisan um, uh, uh, enterprise, and uh, now that we have a bipartisan or at least a div- divided government, maybe we'll set the tone for the uh, the administration for the next two years. We'll, we'll cross our fingers on that one. Um, I, I wanted to pick up on some of uh, of Lou's uh, uh, points, and then um, discuss a little uh, about turnout, which is something that I uh, know quite a bit about, and published some op eds and uh, made some predictions, which turned out to be true uh, for this election. And uh, then I thought I would uh, wrap up with discussing uh, some of my experiences at the exit poll service. I was on the decision desk at the uh, exit poll um, uh, this time around, and so I have. Uh, some interesting things to say, which uh, will probably swamp out everything else that I'll say. But in any case, um, I wanted to pick up what, what Lou was talking about. Um, uh, first of all, in the exit poll, we saw a uh, 53 to f- uh, 45 percent uh, Democratic edge on the generic House ballot. And that seems to be tracking along with what the Associated Press is reporting right now. Um, there's a 52 to 46 percent split on the House vote, uh, but there's still returns that have uh, yet to be counted um, in California, Oregon, Washington. And uh, there's some unopposed races that we, the AP doesn't collect the information yet. So as the numbers come in, we'll probably get very close to what the uh, national exit poll uh, had for the House generic ballot of that 43 to 45 uh, excuse me, 53 to 45 split, about an 8 percentage point advantage for the Democrats. Um, and this also showed up as I was sitting on election night uh, looking at the races. And one of the things that we do in order to make projections is that we te- we look at our polls, we look at some of the actual returns that we're getting from the polls, and we correlate that with other uh, election outcomes within those states to make projections of what's going to happen in the areas that we don't have vote from yet. And as time and time again, as I was looking at the numbers, I was struck at how the the Bush uh, uh, carry vote was, turned out to be the best predictor on the election outcome. So that was the race that was correlating best. And um, even in Virginia, where I'd expected the 2005 gubernatorial election to be the best correlate to the election results as they were coming in, I noticed that it was the Bush uh, carry vote. So I think that does say something about the nationalization of this election. It might explain some of what uh, Lou is describing in terms of how these gubernatorial elections usually 
usually they're about filling potholes uh, and building roads, and it's very non-ideological uh, elections and gubernatorial elections, uh, yet it seemed to be nationalized this year, uh, I guess down to the House level, at the governor's level, um, areas that we don't usually see this sort of um, uh, uh, national wave in one direction or another. Um, what did this mean for turnout? I had predicted that there was going to be a, a 39% turnout among those who are eligible to vote, and that's the way I calculate this. I, uh, I don't do registration. I don't do voting age population, uh, and I could express my displeasure at these other measures uh, uh, for a long time. But I suggest you go to my website, elections.gmu.edu, or just Google voter turnout. I come up number one in uh, Google, so you know that it must be good because uh, all the bloggers think it's good. So, uh, Or maybe that makes it bad. Uh, in any case... Um, uh, it's all described there. All the statistics are there. Um, and so I published that in the Washington Post, that uh, pre-election turnout estimate, and it turned out to be right. Um, now, that was an average uh, turnout rate from uh, since 1972. And you might think, well, w weren't the Democrats really energized this time around? And we got some last-minute word that uh, the re Republicans seemed to be energizing right there at the very end. Uh, what happened? Uh, what wouldn't turnout have been higher? And the problem was that uh, while we did see turnout in the competitive Senate races and some of the competitive gubernatorial races, when we look at the big states of California and New York, they didn't have competitive races. And when there's a lack of competition, and this is really the main worry about um, in the book, if you don't have competition, people are not going to be engaged. And if people are not engaged, that's probably not good for democracy in general. So. Um, uh, we saw that in these this time around. So California, New York, without lacking co competitive elections, had turnout rates below the national average, and so they were drawing down the national turnout rate. And even in Texas, where I had expected that the interesting four-way gubernatorial election would have pushed up turnout in Texas, as we got closer and closer uh, after I wrote the um, uh the prediction, um, it became clear that uh, people weren't really excited about that four-way governor's race in uh, Texas either, and turnout in Texas was pretty anemic as well. So our three biggest states in terms of population had low turnout, and that drew down the national turnout rate. You look for 1994 as a comparison, where you had 41 um, and change as the turnout rate. Uh, there you had interesting races in California and New York, and the turnout rate in those two states were actually above the national turnout rate, and so they were pulling it up. This time they were pulling it down. If, if we had just had some level of competition there in those races, uh, we probably would have seen higher turnout in um, overall on the national level, at least on par with the 1994 election. There was another interesting thing going on with turnout as well and, and, and how this relates to civic engagement. Uh, at the House level, which um, some of the states like Kentucky and Indiana had really no competitive uh, statewide election. Kentucky didn't have any statewide election. Uh, the Indiana um, Senate race was a cakewalk for uh, Luger because he didn't have a, a Democrat running against him. So. Uh, it, in those states, we would have expected turnout to be lower because generally in the past, when, when you look at these trends in midterm elections, without a competitive uh, statewide election to draw up the, the vote, uh, you, would, you don't usually see um, high levels of competition for congressional elections. In this case, this is kind of the surprise, was 
that turned out not to be true. Uh, turnout rates in Kentucky and Indiana um, and some other states that would have otherwise suffered from a lack of competition um, had higher levels of competition than what I had anticipated. So I got it wrong there, and I was uh, a little bit surprised. And you can see, though, where there was a kind of a, a double whammy of not having no uh, competitive statewide race and no competitive uh, congressional race in states like Louisiana and Mississippi. Turnout rates were as anemic as they've been in the past in those states as well in past midterms. So there, something was going on. People were paying attention to levels of competition in their House races, uh, and perhaps that has something to do with the fact that the House was generally perceived to be close. It was a nationalized election, and people really felt like their vote was going to matter towards the control of the, the House of Representatives. And usually, just as I said, um, people don't think in those terms when they're doing um, their turnout calculations. Um, one other thing about turnout, which I, I find interesting and, it re again, relates to competition, is perceptions versus reality. Uh, when we look at Maryland, uh, uh, Cardin won by 10 percentage points, and yet the, the media consistently said that this was going to be a close election. Same with New Jersey. It was a, uh, Menendez had a, a very easy election. Um, and uh, same with uh, um, Casey in, in Pennsylvania. And you, the perceptions were that um, these were going to be close races, and they were continually um, talked about in those terms in the national media. But when you looked at Tennessee, the polls had sh shown a shift away from uh, Ford and towards Corker in the last week and a half or so um, after the infamous negative um, campaign ad came out. And uh, people started saying, well, that race isn't going to be competitive. Actually, that race was more competitive than the other three I just mentioned. Um, the margin was about four percentage points. And so uh, the, uh, the Tennessee race um, probably suffered a bit from uh, perceptions of, of – of, um, of competition in that Senate race. When you look over in Maryland, where the perceptions didn't really necessarily match the reality in the same degree as it did in Tennessee, Maryland actually had a higher turnout rate. Now, it also might have something to do with the competitive governor's election there as well, but I did find it curious that um, Maryland um, had a very robust turnout rate while uh, Tennessee uh, suffered a bit. All right. Exit polls. So I, I've mentioned a few things, and I'm going to draw some of the uh, observations I just uh, mentioned back into the exit polls. So a little bit different topic from competition, but I think um, many people will be interested in it. So uh, I worked as the uh, really as the um, in charge of the decision desk at the um, exit poll service, and my responsibility was to call the elections. And uh, we had some good successes at the exit poll service. Uh, one of them was that the, uh, uh, we had what was called a quarantine room this time. And uh, until 5 o'clock, only a very few number of people had access to um, the polls. And those people were monitored by guards. And so uh, if they had to go to the bathroom, a uh, guard was following them to the bathroom. We couldn't have our cell phones uh, available. And, uh, um, and it seemed to work this time. The, the polls were not leaked until 5 o'clock when um, everybody had access to the exit polls. And I think it took about 15 minutes for them to make their way onto the, uh, the Internet. So um, the quarantine room worked this time. And that was actually very beneficial for us because um, when those polls got leaked in 2004 early, uh, one of the things that's very obvious when you, when you work with this, these data is that you get these early 
poll results uh, coming in, and they're incomplete counts. We're getting a small number of observations, say 10 or 20 observations, uh, respondents, I should say, uh, in a given precinct, and uh, you don't get very good estimates when you have a small number of observations. And uh, we saw this across the board on, on all our polls. As, we, uh, as the day went on, the estimates got better and better and better, and we, we saw some really strange ones. And uh, by the, uh, the end of the day, we're going, well, those actually look very reasonable, by and large. Um, we were concerned, though, uh, uh, by the time that 5 o'clock came around, because uh, we looked at some of the polls and we said, wow, that Maryland race was supposed to be competitive. That New Jersey race was supposed to be competitive. Um, um, we've got uh, um, White House winning in Rhode Island. Uh, darn it, did we get it wrong again? And did we have another pro-democratic bias in the exit polls? And th we were sweating it. I I'll tell you, from 5 until about 8 o'clock or so when the election actual election returns started coming in, and uh, we started saying, heck, these actually look pretty good, darn good. Um, so uh, I, I, we're still doing analysis on it, but I expect at the end of the day that we're going to say that the 2006 exit polls had less of a bias than the 2004 exit polls did. So we, we've, we've done some work on improving the performance, the mechanics, the methodology behind the exit polls, and it seems to have paid off in getting better training for the interviewers, better selection process for the interviewers, and really fighting hard to make sure that our interviewers could be near the polling places because we also saw a bias there where um, interviewers had to be uh, very distant from the, the uh, exit. Um, but that didn't mean that we didn't have a little bit of controversy. And the controversy came yet again back to Maryland, where the, uh, the exit polls and our early counts all showed that uh, Cardin and, um, and, uh, and O'Malley were going to win uh, the two races there. And as the night progressed, we got early returns. The, those two were up in the early returns, and we felt very confident. Everything was correlating very highly, and so our projections looked good. And then as the night wore on, unfortunately, the Democratic areas of the state weren't reporting their results as fast as the Republican areas of the state. And so uh, Steele and Ehrlich went up in the polls. And at that point, uh, Fox and uh, the Washington Post decided that they got a little nervous and said, well, maybe we got the, the exit polls are wrong. And we had a tense maybe half hour there uh, where we were concerned that maybe we were wrong. But all of our projections were still showing. We looked, did diagnostics. We looked at the, at the data. And I think about... Um, uh, about a half hour or so after the, um, those calls were made, the CNN came on and explained why they were not reversing their call in Maryland and uh, for the, the Senate and the gubernatorial election, and that was exactly what I was describing to you. Baltimore, Baltimore County, Baltimore City, um, uh, Prince George's County uh, were strong Democratic areas. They were showing 80 percent um, vote for the Democrats in the areas that were reporting, and all the projections were going to show that that was what was going to happen, um, and indeed the results actually uh, played themselves out. So um, despite what you might have seen on Fox where they were disparaging the exit polls, um, we thought we did a fairly good job, and uh, um, so hopefully, uh, uh, you know, you can always learn from your mistakes in the past, and we seem to have done that, and um, hopefully we'll get it right again in the future as well. So thank you very much. Thank you. Mm -hmm.
as a person who was watching Fox on election night, I'm glad to get the rest of that story because it sort of uh, just came out of the blue that Mike Barone said we're abandoning the exit polls. We now have a, f- a fuller picture of that. Uh, I'd like to welcome our uh, third guest, Jim Pinkerton. Jim is a columnist, as you may know, for Newsday and has been so since 1993. I always like to read Jim's column for a, a different look at things. Uh, prior to that, he worked in the White House under Presidents Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. Uh, and also in the 1980, 84, 88, and 1992 Republican presidential campaigns. Jim is the author of What Comes Next, our topic partially today, uh, the subtitle of which was The End of Big Government and the New Paradigm Ahead. So maybe we'll talk a little bit about whether we are still at the end of big government or not. Uh, He is also a contributor to the Fox News Channel, a fellow at the New America Foundation in Washington here, and a graduate of Stanford University. Please welcome Jim Pinkerton. Thank you, John. Um, I I wrote a column on on Tuesday in which I predicted uh, that the big winner in the election was going to be the Reagan Democrats. And I predicted that because they're the big winner in every election. Uh, uh, they're the swing voters, uh, uh, they, and they are, you know, broadly speaking, uh, uh, somewhat socially conservative and somewhat economically populist. And they always win at the ballot box, and they usually lose in the policymaking process uh, here in Washington. Uh, uh, that's just sort of, the, and they never, they never quite figure it out, and people around here never quite tell them. And uh, but I, I'm going to argue that it's possible this time around, for reasons I'll get into, that they might actually succeed in prevailing and in, in getting their agenda uh, um, put forward in, into, into 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 action. Um, and I think this has some good news and some bad news uh, for the for the Cato Institute. Uh, um, as I said, the, the, these people were the swing vote of the majority. They made the majority of, of the New Deal through 1968, and, and as we all are pretty much familiar, the um, Democrats blew it in 68 through a combination of moving too far to the left on, on ACLU kind of ju- judicial issues and an unpopular foreign war uh, hurt them um, pretty badly. And then the, these voters were mostly uh, Republicans in the Nixon-Reagan era, uh, with a few reverses during Watergate and and uh, and a few times when an exceptional Democratic candidate like Bill Clinton could come along and, and, and or Jimmy Carter and, and, and win them back. Um, and I think that this general right of centerness of this group uh, uh, um, finally came to a pretty decisive end in 2006. Uh, issues like the Iraq War again and and and, and Katrina and corruption uh, clearly I think did the Republicans in. Um, but these people are in the, you know, the te- in an era of television and the internet and stuff. There's not much party loyalty anymore. So some of the, ele- so some of the election results were, were quite striking. Uh, uh, in Wyoming, for example, Craig Thomas was reelected with 70 percent of the vote, a Republican, and uh, Freudenthal, the Democratic governor, was also reelected with 70 percent of the vote. Uh, uh, so that's that's pretty radical ticket splitting. Our uh, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who is certainly a hybrid character uh, 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 politically. Uh, won one of the biggest victories in, in California history uh, just on Tuesday. Um, and in South Dakota, a, a hardcore right-to-life uh, referendum was defeated 
but the governor who signed it, uh, legislation was defeated, but the governor who signed it was reelected. So in other words, they were able to say, look, we're, we're right to life, but we're not that right to life. We're not here to, 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 to ban all abortions. But if you look at some of the other referendum that, that were on the ballot, I think it's pretty clear, again, the Reagan Democrats, uh, I think, won almost all of them. They won on gay marriage. They won on English only. They won on affirmative action. Uh, they won on the minimum wage. Um, and I think it was John told me that they uh, even uh, voted down a pot smoking uh, initiative in Nevada. I mean, you know, uh, 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 if, if libertarians can't win in Nevada, where can they win? Uh, um, and again, but as I said, both parties, I think, pretty relentlessly uh, uh, seek to misinterpret these results. And what happens? They say, ah, oh, see, the, the, the people... They voted, the Republicans say that these people voted for conservatism. They voted to privatize Social Security. No, they didn't. You know, the, the, the Democrats will say they voted, you know, to bring back uh, uh, the, the left liberal agenda. They wanted to block judges like John Roberts and Samuel Alito. No, they didn't. And we'll have to have a sorting out process again in the 110th Congress where both parties try to do what they want to do anyway. Uh, 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 and try and sell it to the swing voters in the middle. Who, you know, and and and, uh, and I think I can think of, of, of two examples. I'm sure will come up uh, uh, shortly. One is Social Security. I, I've heard the president say we're going to go back to the Social Security initiative. Well, lots of luck. You know. Uh, uh, um, uh, another one is immigration. You know, I, I, I think that they they keep saying in the news. Nancy Pelosi and George Bush say the one issue we we can all agree on is a guest worker program, and, and, and uh, it's entirely possible they can get some legislation through, especially since, well, as the House Republicans have been defeated now. I'll just make a flat prediction for anybody who keeps track of these things, and I, I usually try to avoid them. If John McCain finds himself standing at a signing ceremony on a guest worker bill uh, with Nancy Pelosi and Teddy Kennedy, uh, he is doomed as the Republican nominee in 2008. Uh, he'll get defeated. And if he, if he gets the nomination somehow, uh, Tom Tancredo or somebody will run against him as a third party uh, explicitly to defeat him. Uh, um, so I think those, those issues, you know, again, it may happen, but I think it's clearly not where, where the Reagan Democrat, where the swing voters are. Um, and I think the, the, the swing voters will be looking for somebody to do something. They don't exactly know how, and they're not articulate, and they don't have a lot of think tanks and institutes and magazines to, to speak for them. Um, they're going to look for somebody to do something on deindustrialization and income inequality. They're going to say somebody's got to, something's going wrong here. Uh, uh, I'm getting laid off from my job. Uh, Walmart is squeezing me out of my health care, and some hedge fund guy is making 150 million a year in Greenwich. There's something not quite right about this picture. Uh, um, and I realize a good chunk of the elites in this town will say, "Oh no, there's no problem here. This is all perfect. This is exactly the way it's supposed to be." Uh, um, we'll see what happens. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, um, but I think, okay, that's a, that's a familiar enough phenomenon in, in, in American politics, but I think it, it's going to have specific implications for international affairs, too. And I think that's a, that's, that's a change, because for, since World War II, since 1945, since America was so triumphant in both World War II and then the Cold War, uh, the elites have been comfortably comfortable saying, well, it is America's destiny to lead the world uh, it is America's destiny to reshape the world, to reshape the world of trade and politics, democracy, human rights, uh, 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 you name it. And let's face it, we could sort of do it. You know, we didn't win everything. We didn't win in Vietnam, but we, but we did a pretty good job overall. And so, so there was a, a, a right elite and a left elite. The right elite was, you know, obviously pro-free trade and pro the occasional foreign war. 
the left elite was pro-free trade for a while, and not so much, then pro-foreign wars for a while, and not so much. And now it's moved over to issues like the United Nations and the Kyoto Treaty and, and, and so on and so on. And, and pretty much in Washington, those two elites battle it out over what larger role America should play in the world. Well, I think the problem that we're coming up against here in, in, the, in the early 21st century is that those issues are starting to come at a severe cost. Uh, immigration. I think the average American sees what's going on in Europe uh, and thinks this isn't so good. We don't want that here. Um, I think the immigration issue has clearly started to, to, to bite into uh, uh, politics uh, here at home. I think the trade issue, I think you know, the election of Sherrod Brown in Ohio being the most, I suppose, spectacular example. Uh, I think the Iraq war has had an effect on people's feelings of American omnipotence and, 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 and so on. And I think to the extent that people think about it, and it's not a whole lot, uh, but, there's, but it will be, it's, it becomes back in the agenda, the uh, Kyoto Treaty. We really want to have an international regime to, dedicated to deindustrializing. Uh, oh, forget me, saving the environment. Uh, uh, um, we'll see. You know, that's a big fight. And again, I, I can, as I think about the Cato Institute, uh, you know, which has always been nice to me and always been nice enough to invite me to all their things, and I've gotten more free lunches here than almost anywhere. Uh, um, <laughs> you too. Uh, uh, um, this looks good for Cato on on international environmentalism in terms of opposing uh, uh, Cato treaties. It looks good for Cato, at least most of Cato, on foreign wars. Uh, um, it, lo- it looks bad for Cato on trade, and it looks bad for uh, uh, trade Cato, at least as I understand the Cato position, uh, on, on immigration. Um, as I said, the, the internationalism, I think, is yielding to a kind of nationalism, a kind of shrunken expectations nationalism about America. It's what the Reagan Democrats always kind of wanted, and I think because uh, of these circumstances I outlined, uh, it's possible that this time around the, the elites uh, will actually give them what they voted for. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Um, I'm going to take a few minutes to bring us around uh, before we move to questions and answers um, and to touch on some of the issues Jim was talking about. Uh, the great thing about the Cato Institute, there's, there's many great things about the Cato Institute besides free lunches, actually. <laughs> and the, uh, all the lunches are fine, too, as you're going to find out in about a half hour, um, is that you, to find out what the Cato Institute is about, you need only go to Cato, www.cato.org and uh, uh, click on About Us. The mission statement's very concise. The mission of the Cato Institute is to bring to public policy discussions uh, the values of the American Revolution, is what it says, and those values are natural rights, limited government, and peace. Therefore, there's a concern uh, about limited government and limiting government and, what, and what, how that, what that can mean for public policy at the Cato Institute. One of our, those concerns over time has taken us to ta- have an interest in ballot initiatives. There's a man named John Matsuzaka, uh, who were, is an academic at the University of Southern California who has studied ballot initiatives in the states, that is, direct democracy initiatives that were put on uh, the ballot in, in about 23 states and uh, then voted up or down. And he studied those over the last century or so. It was a progressive reform that's been in, around for 100 years. And his conclusions are for about uh, 50 of those years, the progressive era when it began, that ballot initiatives had the tendency on the whole, on the edge, to uh, expand government, to bring about uh, various kinds of uh, changes that way. But for the last 50 years, and particularly since the late 1970s in California, Proposition 13, 
uh, there's been a tendency for ballot initiatives to act as a restraint on government, particularly on taxes. So that brings us to 2006, as we've heard, a very good year for the Democratic Party in general. What can we conclude from the ballot initiatives that were on uh, various uh, state uh, uh, ballots in 2006? And I think what I would have to say from uh, a libertarian or Cato kind of position, the natural rights limited government position, the story is probably a lot more mixed than you would expect given what you know about the democratic uh, wave that went through the country a couple days ago. Uh, and perhaps that's not too surprising, but it is a mixed picture, picture from a Cato perspective. Uh, one of the most uh, interesting and, uh, from our point of view, valuable kind of uh, efforts in, the, in 2006 might be called responses to the Supreme Court's Kelo decision. If you remember the decision, uh, the Kelo decision of the Supreme Court, it involved a, a Connecticut effort uh, essentially to what one would, uh, and even John, Justice uh, John Paul Stevens strongly implied in the opinion, was a abuse of the power of eminent domain in which people's property was taken and given to private developers to uh, bring about a, a allegedly a renaissance of a downtown area. This was a, turned out to be, when it came out, a very unpopular decision. Uh, even Stevens himself said in the opinion that it, were he the policymaker, he would never do anything like this. Uh, and it led to 11 states having ballot initiatives that were designed to protect private property in various ways from uh, this abuse of, uh, of eminent domain. And the, res and the uh, returns there were quite, quite good in the sense that of those 11 states, nine of the states, the voters in those states, approved the measures, generally speaking, by uh, substantial numbers. However, in two states, the initiatives on eminent domain, the anti-kilo, failed in the largest state, California, and in also in Idaho. Those were uh, initiatives that had a regulatory takings component to them. That is, that people had to be compensated for their, part, their, uh, their uh, property being taken and therefore involved, ultimately, debates about environmental policy. The one in California failed by 52 to 48. Um, now, given that and, uh, and so on, I'm not sure what you make of that. I mean, is a 52-48 loss in a year in which um, the party, the Democratic Party is doing very well, is that a, and the Democratic senator from California is winning, is that uh, a, a bad thing? Is it a, it's certainly a loss, but uh, is it um, better than you might expect knowing everything else? I, I'll leave that to you to conclude. Um, a regulatory takings initiative in the state of Washington also failed. Um, but in Arizona, a land use measure with a significant regulatory takings provision passed, and it passed by 65-35. So that's a pretty good result. The other uh, set of issues is about taxes and spending, uh, reducing taxes, increasing spending is obviously important issues. Uh, there were 40 uh, measures in one way or the other that affected that, including uh, in California a, a proposal for a $2.60 per cigarette uh, pack tax increase. That failed. A $50 parcel tax for public schools in California, Proposition 88, which also failed. Um, there were also, and interestingly, a number of Tabor-style measures on the ballot. Um, a Tabor-style measure, if you're a Cato fan, you'll, you'll know a lot about that in, uh, in Colorado and other places. 
It's essentially an effort through the initiative to limit government spending, state government spending, to inflation plus the population growth rate. They have one in various places, as I said, including Colorado. They were removed from the ballot prior to Election Day in two states, Nevada and Oklahoma. Uh, look for in the future these kinds of removals prior to the vote becoming increasingly controversial and increasingly uh, perhaps resorted to. Um, sad to say, the um, Tabor-style tax and spending limitations were rejected in, th the th in three states uh, that they were on, Maine, Nebraska, and Oregon. Uh, perhaps the one that's most surprising there, uh, as you might expect, is the Republican state of Nebraska. A, a property tax limit also failed in South Dakota. Uh, there was also a lot of new spending, a, a combined uh, number of $43 billion in new debt, new bond spending was approved, including four large ones, four or five large ones in uh, California. In California, a spectacular battle over an uh, initiative to tax oil extraction and use the money for development of uh, renewable resources failed. Uh, the spending over that initiative uh, was uh, pro and con was uh, estimated to be $150 million, easily the single most uh, ever spent on a single ballot proposition. Now, you might think that it's what I've said so far. Well, Cato Institute, conservative, right? Well, I said limited government. I didn't say conservative. Uh, we also have a concern about um, the ongoing drug war and against uh, use individuals make about how to use their body in various ways. Uh, drugs and uh, drug legalization or decriminalization was not a big issue this time around in uh, various uh, states. There were essentially uh, three measures, and they all lost to, uh, and the two other measures uh, w that were mentioned, uh, Jim mentioned, one, there were two measures to legalize small amounts of marijuana. They both lost by substantial numbers, uh, Nevada 56 to 44, and in Colorado 60-40. However, in South Dakota, uh, there was an um, effort to legalize marijuana for medical purposes, and that was 52-48, but it was also a loss. So you have to say, uh, in the larger numbers, it wasn't a big issue, and they did lose, but perhaps doing better than you would expect. Lou mentioned um, the minimum wage. Uh, that may be, uh, it depends on what the national government does. Minimum wage um, uh, got on six ballots. It went six for six, was passed in all, approved in all states, and uh, often by substantial numbers. Uh, what the federal government may or may not do something about that, we'll have to see. But uh, it, um, it certainly was popular with the voters, and it may continue to be, depending, we'll look into the future about that. Again, this is, of course, price setting in, in labor markets, and not something that, uh, if you're a fan of limited government, or indeed uh, has certain effects, um, good for some people, bad for quite a few others. Campaign, campaign finance regulation, an issue, as I mentioned, that I work on, uh, there wasn't a lot there uh, in Oregon. Oregon is a remarkable state that has a constitutional amendment that is a free speech amendment, and it has to be overturned before they can have limits on contributions and various regulations of campaign finance. There was an effort to get rid of that, uh, contra uh, that constitutional amendment, uh, and that failed. So the, there was also, um, amazingly, another um, 
uh, effort in the same uh, election to pass contribution limits through the initiative process. Uh, of course, that could only go into effect if the Constitution was changed, which it was not. Uh, but the contribution limit uh, initiative did pass. It's just not going to go into effect. So voters voted both yes and no in a strange sort of way on contribution limits. But I guess in a way the biggest thing that happened with campaign finance this time around was in California. Proposition 89, a so-called clean elections uh, initiative, that is clean elections, when you hear that word, there's, uh, it, what it really means is taxpayers are going to finance campaigns. And this was probably the biggest gambit ever by what has been a sustained national effort to pass public financing. Uh, it has succeeded in Arizona and Maine. Uh, in California, it was on the ballot this time, and it lost 75 to 25. And it was a spectacular defeat, and it, that's a, also a defeat that is probably larger than any poll result I've ever seen. Public financing is generally unpopular in polls depending on how the questions ask. And even if you ask, do you favor public financing to get rid of uh, nefarious special interest influence, it uh, still barely gets majorities. Um, California ha is a complicated situation. All of the existing interest groups, except for one, the Nurses Association, which proposed the amendment, were against it. Um, I'll leave you to make the decision about what that means. Uh, public financing, in my view, has a lot of problems. But the fact that all of the existing uh, interest groups uh, were against it perhaps is also not all that uh, encouraging. Um, term limits lost in Oregon also. That was a somewhat complicated case. One has to say also on immigration issues uh, in Arizona, Colorado, immigration. Uh, there was nothing pro-immigration that came out of ballot initiative night. Uh, there was a great deal that was indicated a lot of uh, unhappiness with the f a movement of labor in, in an international economy. Racial preferences uh, was uh, passed, that is a ban on racial preference in state uh, activity in Michigan uh, uh, under equality uh, under law. That was would be welcomed by the Cato Institute. We'll see what happens beyond that. You also saw other things like bans on tobacco and smoking in, in uh, three states. In general, I think uh, I would assess it that it was a very mixed night. Uh, the kilo uh, um, successes were certainly welcome. There's now more, a little more indication that tax uh, limitations, tax uh, cuts are not as popular as they once were, that's, that people are willing and uh, initiative voters are willing to spend, spend some money. But uh, in general, it was certainly... Uh, it was not a, a terrible night and certainly not a night that one could uh, describe as wholly bad for the, the mission of the Cato Institute or indeed what I would call a liberal or a libertarian point of view. I, I want to end up real quick now so we can get to the questions and answers by uh, just saying a few words about the general changes. We now obviously have Democrats in charge of Congress. If you're concerned, and I, I won't go into questions that were mentioned, I guess, by Jim, maybe a couple of other people, about what this means on the international affairs uh, for Cato specialists. You can find those people on our website and, and talking about this. But I wouldn't go into the question of spending and taxing and sort of talk about that just briefly and what we might expect. Um, and I think you could say two things. If you look at uh, unified Republican government, 
and you look at the tendency of the federal government as a, uh, the spending of the federal government as a percentage of gross national product over the last 50 years or so, one thing that's noticeable is that when you get unified government in 2000, you get an immediate uptick in spending as a percentage of national wealth, and it's uh, risen quickly. And even more troubling, uh, all the spending that has been decisions been taken um, is not included in the current budgets. You have a $16 trillion net present value uh, prescription drug benefit added during that period, for example. So in that sense, the Republican Party, it's hard to make the case, and the line goes fairly straight up. Uh, in terms of increases in spending. It's hard to make the case since 2000 that the Republican Party is a party of budgetary restraint. On the other hand, if you look, as I say, at a 50-year period, and you look for the year 1948 to 1980, which we might call a period of unified democratic control of uh, Congress, uh, and you put a regression line on it, what you notice is that year in and year out, 0.28 of a percent of GDP moves from private to public. That is, there's an increase, a, uh, a relative increase in the size of federal spending year in and year out throughout that period. So what you would say if you had unified democratic control and if the, the future is like the past, that about a quarter of a percent of GDP every year will continue to go to the federal government in, in increases. But of course, neither one of those situations is the situation we face now. We don't face democratic unified government or Republican unified government. We face divided government. There the story, particularly from 1994 to, uh, to 2000, is quite good on the budgetary front. You do see uh, a, a real decrease in the relative size of government during that period. The one question, and I'll finish with this caveat, is if you look at those numbers, a lot of that decrease came out of the defense budget, and it's not clear that, that that's open now to those kinds of uh, uh, reductions again. So the answer is, are the Democrats a disaster for limited government? Well, maybe. Are the Republicans? Well, maybe. So maybe it's divided government that's the way to go, and we're certainly going to find out uh, at least in the next couple of years, and maybe if we're lucky for some time thereafter. And on that note, I want to now turn to our question and answer period. Uh, basically, what I would ask you to do, if you have something, a uh, question to ask, please wait till the microphone arrives, identify yourself, and uh, have something in the form of a question. Maybe if you want a, a specific person to speak with here, identify who you're pointing it toward. Uh, our guests will sit here and uh, answer from their, um, from their seats. Uh, so let's begin, let's begin over here on the left side. Roman Bueller. Um, I used to work uh, for the House Administration Committee. Now I have a private consulting practice. But my question is, there are maybe a dozen new uh, Republican freshmen that are going to come to Washington uh, over the weekend. And, and uh, they're obviously walking into a situation where uh, what we've been doing in the past or what Republicans have been doing in the past hasn't worked. What do you think uh, they are likely – what kind of changes do you think they are likely uh, to uh, – uh, push for in the Republican conference, and uh, if you were advising them, perhaps more importantly, what would you advise them uh, to push for as uh, new uh, new Republicans and, and future leaders in the conference? Well, I'm just I'm sure everybody's got an answer on that. Um, I, I think that the first thing I start with is 
what unhinged the Republicans in 2006, I think, was the Iraq War. Uh, uh, and there's a substantial effort to, to, to in, in among many uh, conservative right-of-center publications, neoconservative, to say, oh, the Iraq War had nothing to do with it because uh, Jim Leach was defeated and, and Lincoln Chafee was defeated and Hofstadler was defeated and they all voted against the war. And they, they, were, they were lost. Obviously, the war had nothing to do with it. Uh, I think that explains why uh, Secretary of Education Spellings was forced to resign uh, the day before yesterday. That, w- that was a joke. Uh, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously, if Bush agrees that Rumsfeld had to go, then most Republicans have come to that conclusion. And so uh, uh, if I were a, young, a, a freshman Republican, whatever I could get out of Baker and Hamilton in terms of some resolution for this that uh, uh, hopefully has some element of peace with, peace with honor in it, uh, uh, would be what I would think would be key to getting me reelected in 2008. I'm, I'm going to flip it around and talk about um, the challenges for the Democratic um, uh, freshmen because I think they're going to be even more challenged than the Republican, and that's that uh, they're coming into a House uh, House caucus that is much more ideologically uh, divided than where the Republicans were uh, when they had control, and these primarily uh, the people who won at least in uh, the the takeover seats, uh, were are people who are more moderate than their caucus. And so the challenge for them is going to, and really the challenge for the Democratic Party, is going to be how are they going to accommodate the moderates within their party? Because if they don't accommodate those moderates uh, in 2008, we saw a hurricane force winds this election and that was just enough to get the Democrats' uh, majority control in the House. Um, just even a slight breeze back in the Republicans' direction, and a lot of these Democratic uh, in, uh, freshmen are going to be blown down by that breeze. So, um, uh, and you look at the, at the House leadership, you look at the, the chairman, uh, many of them are sitting in very safe, uncompetitive seats, that are, um, and they are ideologically um, liberal, extreme, you know, on the far end of the, the ideological scale. Um, so it, it, will those people moderate, will they um, uh, be pragmatic enough to uh, accommodate their moderates and so that they might have a chance to win in 2008? I would uh, just focus a little bit on the, on the question of civility in Congress and um, – there seemed to be, and this is nothing new to, to the GOP majority, I'm sure that, sure the Democrats were like that as well when they were in, in control for 40 years, but there's a certain arrogance that power brings when you're in power for a long time, and I think both parties could really use a dose of sort of, uh, of, uh, you know, of uh, be, being a little bit more humble um, and uh, trying to sort of cooperate more and, and shave some, some of the rougher edges off of how the, the GOP operated in the House because um, uh, I think it, f- at least for some of the folks who lost there is a perception that they'd kind of lost touch um, and with, with their districts and and with the people and I think a little bit more um, more focus on the people's uh, uh, more focus on the people's business and a little bit less sort of um, on their own political futures and staying in Congress, I think, would be a little bit of an improvement. There was a, uh article about J.D. Hayworth about uh, within the last week in which he, he mentioned, you know, after the first couple of uh, terms that the orientation for Republican congressmen was, was something along the lines of, you know, you've got these positions and so on. 
But here's really how you win re-election, and, you know, it's about getting projects for your district and, and those sorts of things. Um, Dick Army has a nice piece in the journal this morning about um, getting back to uh, what the Republican Party said it stood for, which is not so much concern about re-election and sort of ruthless concern about that and um, maybe away from some of the things that alienated part of the base. Like, and I'll say, uh, too, that um, the nature of the narrow, at least historically narrow, uh, uh, divide in, in terms of the margins in Congress, I mean, the, uh, if the margins are close, each party thinks they can take over next time. So as long as they're close, it, it's the natural inclination to focus less on what you're actually accomplishing and more on how you can get yourself either to preserve your majority or to gain the majority if you're the out-of-party power, out-of-power uh, yeah. Chris. Um, one of the things that's very interesting about the eminent domain votes was that the eminent domain issue became a very popular issue among the masses. And is, is there a way that Cato can make some of these other things more popular issues? The Institute for Justice had, had people, you know, your common, ordinary man, his home's being taken away from him. Mm-hmm. Is, 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 can this be done with other issues? And uh, I, I can't think of one. I mean, obviously the tax issue is, is one, but uh, I think Jarvis gone and Howard Jarvis and Paul Gann managed to make that an issue in California in 78. Is there a way of making that? I think that's a way, that's something that should be thought of. I don't know, you know, much about making things, putting things on the national agenda, but I will say the one thing that struck me about uh, the Kelo decision was it, w- it was a decision where it was a, where property rights were in a context of, uh, of being broad. That is to say, it involved a, uh, an ordinary person of modest means or less having their – it was essentially a, an abuse of government against a person of modest means. And it, therefore, I think, raised the possibility in everyone's mind that uh, eminent domain could be used in this way and that there wasn't a specific group that uh, private property – that it was indeed a general problem. So that's uh, – it, it's a characteristic of the, the issue, I think, that was, it was good, but it was handed to us by the Supreme Court and by the people of, of this legislature of Connecticut. I, I would just add, I mean – the horny-handed sons of toil, to use a phrase from the 19th century, uh, uh, have always reliably been pro-property rights, uh, anti-gun control, and uh, within reason uh, anti-tax, especially on them. Uh, uh, So to the extent that you can, Cato and others in the free market limited government movement can identify these things as small property owner Type issues, as, and, and John's point is well taken. The 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 the, the, the victim in the kilo decision was a perfect plaintiff. Uh, uh, that puts you in good stead, I think, with uh, the majority, as opposed to some more avant-garde issues. Gentleman down here, uh, yes, this. we'll get you both, but that one. Uh, Steve Huntoon, uh, no affiliation. I have two questions. The first is. 
The generic ballot uh, late last week, there were several uh, disparate polls that were coming out. There was uh, some that were in the six to nine range and then others that were in the high teens. It seems like the, uh, the first set were correct, but the others seem to be outside the, uh, um, uh, the estimate range. And I wonder if you could comment on why there was these disparate results. And the second uh, question I had is whether in the election results you see any um, uh, discernible uh, libertarian disaffection with the Bush administration. Um, the answer to the, f uh, the first question uh, about the generic House ballot. So there were many polls that came out right before the election, and some of them had huge leads for the Democrats. Um, would, it would have been not hurricane force winds. I mean, we would have had to have been like on Jupiter to have the same those sort, sorts of force winds. Um, so we didn't see that, and. Uh, um, uh, and then there were a set of polls out that uh, had it uh, much closer. Uh, Pew, among others, uh, was the one that was most cited, had a, a 4% edge on the generic ballot. Um, it almost looks like we split the difference between the polls. Um, and uh, it's, you know, it's one of those things we're going to have to look back on and figure out why it was that uh, these, um, these, these polls were so uh, unstable right before the election, because usually we see greater stability among the polls, a more general agreement among the polls as we get closer uh, to the election, and likely voter models tend to um, even out. So I, I really don't have a good explanation as to why there was, they were so out there. Uh, you could kind of spin a, a margin of error story since the, the truth looks to be about splitting the difference between them, but even then, um, the mo most extreme polls, we were outside the margin of error on those, so I, I don't have a good explanation. Um, uh, the, the second question, was there a libertarian backlash against the uh, Republicans? Um, it's difficult to pick up in the polls. What it seems to be, uh, when you look at the overall uh, comp partisan composition of the electorate, it looks very similar to what it was in 2004, 2002, and 2000. Um, so there were no, you know, maybe slightly more Democrats showing up or people at least saying that they're Democrats. And, um, but even then, it's all within the margin of the error of the poll, so you really can't draw any conclusions from that. Um, you look how people voted. Democrats are voting for Democrats and Republicans were voting for Republicans, just like they did in 2004, 2002, and 2000. So that wasn't where the, the um, advantage came from the, uh, for the Democrats. It came from the independents. Um, and if there are people, libertarians among uh, those independents, we don't ask that question uh, on the poll, so I, I can't answer the question directly. But if, the, if that's where they are, then that is where the backlash came from. Um, and self-described independents or moderates, uh, there was about, oh, an 8 to 10 percentage point swing towards the Democrats in this election. That pretty much explains the uh, uh, advantage the Democrats had. Just on the second question, uh, I did some reporting out in the Rocky Mountain West earlier this year. And one of the things that, that did strike me that I wasn't fully prepared for is the extent to which Republicans, or conservatives anyway, were not happy with the current Congress and the president in terms of spending. It, it definitely was an issue out there, um, and they were not happy with their own party. Um, one sort of uh, separate point is that I think there were a couple of races in which Libertarian Party candidates actually got more votes than the margin of error. Not too many rate races, but I think that there were a couple. Oh. I mean, then the uh, gap between the uh, the uh, the uh, GOP and Democratic candidates, I should say. 
That's correct. I just wanted to mention, uh, I would urge you to take a look at uh, the two Davids, uh, David Bowes and David Kirby's uh, recent piece on the libertarian vote that was published by Cato, uh, in which it suggested that uh, President Bush had a significant drop-off in the libertarian vote in, in 2004 compared to 2000. Uh, I know that they also are planning uh, or speaking with uh, Zogby, John Zogby, to have a, a follow-up poll now to try to use the same sorts of measures to see what happened in 2006. So stay tuned to the Cato website and, and look for that. We'll have better, uh, more direct answers about that. And actually, I should say, too, in the states that I, I talked about, um, the, uh, the uh, GOP candidates tended to seriously underperform. Um, the uh, GOP at-large House member in the state of Wyoming, she, she won by 800 votes. And this is the, like Dick Cheney's former seat, so you can tell it's, it's a very conservative state. Um, and in Idaho, a, the, uh, uh, a Democrat nearly won the uh, governor's race and nearly won the uh, seat in the House. It was within a couple of points, which is far better than anyone ever expected. But, you know, those Democrats are um, conservative. Sure. I mean, uh, they yeah. are not uh, – Flaming liberal um, Democrats, and so uh, as I said, that's going to be the challenge for the Democrats: is how do they hold on to these seats that are traditionally Dem- uh, Republican seats? Mm-hmm. in front. I have a question that may relate to the popular issue from a couple of questions back, and that's about voting machines. I'm wondering: was there any hint at all that the, the famous threat of hacking voting machines took place? And then the second thing, are we going to get rid of these darn things, or are they going to fiddle around until the next election and then not have time to get rid of them again? Well, well, I thought George Allen was going to claim that it was the voting machines in Fairfax County, because there's no paper verified trail. And, you know, it's it's an interesting um, story, because in uh, Virginia, it's actually some Republicans who have been advocates for paper verified trails, uh, because I guess they distrust the Democratic machinery. And I, it doesn't look like we're going to be in the recount situation um, as, uh, as if, if the news accounts are correct that Allen will concede. But um, uh, I, that could have been a story, that uh, at least in Virginia, because we do have um, that. But otherwise, um, yeah, it looks – thankfully we got through it. Um, it. It's always the losing party that complains about um, the conduct of the elections. Uh, so, you know – Drum up the Republicans. You know, they're going to complain about Democrats stealing elections now. I should say that I noticed that there's a couple of commissioners of the Federal Election Commission here. So I'm sure they don't want to say anything about it, but you might be able to buttonhole them at lunch. You know who they are. Uh, Gentlemen, next, and then we'll go back uh, to some people that have been patient in the back. Yeah, Raul Katanga with Synergy Alliances. There's been a big, uh, in terms of the past couple of months, about special interests or the ethical problems with respect to lobbyists. I noticed um, both Democrats and Republicans obviously need a lot of campaign contributions. And do you see with the Democratic Congress, especially Speaker Pelosi and her mantra of, culture of co- uh, culture of corruption, do you think she will be able to uh, introduce legislation to reform or at least uh, scale back these kind of activities. Yeah, she's going to drain the swamp, but is she going to leave the green slime that's uh, sitting on top of it? Sorry to (laughs) give the analogy to you, John. uh, Well, first of all, the... uh, Anytime you... Here's advice. Anytime you've written a book, 
never go without an opportunity to show it. So in this book, <laughs> The Fallacy of Campaign, I, I provide you the evidence. So the, the evidence is pretty strong that there's not a lot of influence for on campaign contributions. Once in general, if you cover enough votes and uh, once you control for everything else like ideology and so on. Now, the corruption problems are not things that are coming to play with campaign contributions a little bit. There's some – I think Nay had a contribution issue – uh, a lot of the Abramoff stuff was out and out bribes. I think actually the one thing Pelosi's got out outstanding is, is the Jefferson matter has not been disposed of yet. That's right. right. That's right. That's so right. That, that's still hanging out there, and that certainly hurt them for a while. Um, he may lose, though, because it looks like it's going to be a um, runoff election. Oh. Right. He got 30 percent in the first round, but he'll probably lose the second round, most likely. Okay. The um, – one thing, one point I would like to make is that uh, in terms of campaign contributions, there's sort of an argument out there that uh, one of the things that campaign contributions do is they come from wealthy people, and they, that is they prevent and therefore they protect the interests of wealthy people because the only people that can win primaries are the people who can fund uh, their campaigns and so on. If you think about the Democratic Party and uh, Speaker Pelosi. Uh, it is interesting that they have become, over the last 20 years or so, both a party of big money. They have many large contributors. They've become much more successful at fundraising. They've become closer to the Republicans in that period also. And I think you would have to say, on the whole, the party has moved to the left during that period also. Now, you could say, in part, well, that may reflect the, uh, the preferences of their wealthy contributors. And to some extent, that's true. But then that's, you know, uh, that's an issue about uh, campaign contributions are ways of expressing yourself and participating in politics. And I think so. Yes, I think she's going to reflect the people who supported her. Uh, will that be corrupt? Not at all. John? Yes. Uh, just a couple things. Uh, um, Speaker Pelosi will have to deal with Alcee Hastings, uh, uh, who looks to me like he's in line to be a committee chairman. Uh, uh, um, there's one. Uh, Harry Reid will have to deal with himself. Uh, uh, um, so who knows? I, I don't doubt for a second there'll be another wave of campaign laws and re- regulations and restrictions. And you know, uh, 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 John and others around here have written extensively on this. If you want to pick one thing that's got unintended consequences written all over it, it's the Camp Clean Up the Swamp Act of 2007. Uh, it just occurred to me that Probably every competitive race in this, this last year generated 10 or 50 or 100 YouTube videos, right? And, and as I understand it, none of those, there's, there's zero restrictions whatsoever on that. I mean, I mean it was completely outside of McCain-Feingold. So far. So, right, so far. So far, exactly. So, so McCain-Feingold sits on, on normal political speech, and so people go to this new medium and create a, a Wild West, which, again, won't last forever, but it will last for a time or two, although... I don't doubt the FEC and its wisdom is dreaming up some way of, you know, uh, restricting it. Just to pick up on that, too, uh, YouTube and the others are going to be the robocalls um, from mm. outside organizations because they don't identify who they're coming from. Yeah, that was a late issue, and, and that will be played out over the next couple of months. Let's go to the back a little bit. A gentleman here on my left has, uh, has been waiting for a while. Hi, I'm Conrad Chafee with Tokyo Newspaper, and I've just got a couple of related questions. The first is, for the panel, what chances do you see for further attrition by retirement among House Republicans who now find themselves in the minority, uh, especially those who are remaining in the Northeast? And if we do see retirements like that, um, 
do you see a chance for these seats flipping Democratic and therefore expanding the Democratic majority in the House? Uh, I I do see a lot of retirements coming, um, not necessarily in the next week or so, but but through the course of the next two years. Um, <coughs> excuse me. One, <coughs> one factor that could actually play into that is if there is lobbying reform uh, and they have a two-year ban instead of a one-year ban on lobbying, that could actually be a disincentive to retire because it just means you have to wait longer to make the big bucks on K Street. Um, but uh, in terms of the Democrats taking over, we actually ran a story this morning that was a little bit counterintuitive. Usually think when there's a big wave election that a lot of the folks who win are in borrowed seats, essentially, you know, really controlled by the other party in terms of the demographics and the uh, sort of political leanings. Uh, certainly that happened in, in terms of 1994, not uh, across the board, but it happened a lot. Um, but actually, a lot of the gains by Democrats were in these very moderate districts. In fact, one of my questions had, uh, you know, how, how many Kerry districts uh, were held by G- GOP before and after? And uh, I think there's only like four or five or six left. Um, so... Uh, our feeling was actually that in the next cycle, the Democrats are not nearly in as bad shape as far as that goes, may even be able to expand further, um, particularly when you think of the Democratic majority now, a new majority. It's been in, in the minority and totally powerless for 12 years. Suddenly you have the powers of uh, uh, actually being in office and you have a much stronger uh, you know, r- rationale for actually electing you. Um, you can uh, – it does certainly provide an opportunity for them to expand what they currently have. I wanted to follow up uh, a question to that question uh, to, and pose for Mike. Uh, I wondered, Mike, we now have uh, a, a similar Democratic majority than we had the Republican. The Republican one lasted uh, for 14 years. Uh, there was a 40-year run by the Democrats before that. So the question, you, I guess the expectation would be with those kinds of numbers, knowing nothing else, that you would say, well, this is going to be, the House is going to be Democratic for 14, 16 years, uh, that it, there's going to be a persistence here for the next generation or so. And th- what uh, Lou just said suggests that's true in the near term. What do you think about uh, I, I I wouldn't be retiring too soon um, because 2008 uh, – if we just have a normal election like we've had since 1994 up until this point, uh, I suspect a number of these seats are going to flip back to the Republican Party. And this is the kind of theme I've been talking about, the, the challenges to the Democratic leadership. So, um, uh, But what's interesting, too, um, when you drill down even further, for somebody like myself, I'm really interested in redistricting and, and what the effects are on congressional and state legislative uh, um, districts. And uh, um, when we look... Uh, down at who's going to be controlling the redistricting process in the next decade, it's actually starting to look pretty good for the Democrats. And so uh, um, it's, and it's, I guess, no surprise then that the uh, Democrats were pushing for redistricting reform in Ohio in 2005, put initiative on the ballot there. In 2006, Republicans became interested in it, anticipating that they might lose some uh, control of the State Legislative Commission because it's elected officials who are actually on the commission there. And uh, the Democrats are the ones who balked at uh, redistricting reform just one year later. And we look across the board. um, I don't think that the Republicans are going to be able to pull off as um, uh, uh, masterful of a a national um, pro-Republican gerrymander uh, in 2012 as they did in 2002. But at least for the near term, um, we're still operating under the map that was in 2002, uh, plus Texas. And um, I, 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 like I said, just a slight breeze back in the Republicans' uh, favor, and it would not be unusual to have that. A lot of uh, uh, 
uh, Democrats are going to be very vulnerable in 2008. Yeah, there is Mr. Lampson probably should not buy a uh, house. Yes. Yeah. Certainly not. Yeah. Uh, the gentleman on my right here was uh, the next person I noticed. There's a couple people over there. Just keep the mic over there. We have time for Hi, uh, Maury Silverman, American Library for Health. I've often thought that we're never really going to get progress in this country until reasonable people on both sides, uh, be they Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, uh, get together to do something pragmatic. And uh, I wish I could give everybody in this room my favorite campaign button that says, I wasn't born Democrat, Republican, or yesterday. And uh, I was encouraged by some of your comments just recently, uh, wondering if both or stating if both parties could be more humble and if they'd be more pragmatic enough to accommodate their uh, moderates. My question is, uh, would you um, know of any particular issues in public matters that might have a reasonable uh, probability for that actually happening? I'll, I'll say that I, I agree. Uh, uh, certainly, the gang of fourteen uh, got some judges through, and some judges not through, and 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 that looks like a pretty good deal now. I think uh, as the Republicans look ahead uh, uh, to the next Congress, uh, um, you know, obviously the more important the issue, the more important uh, uh, bipartisanship is. I think the the. the the, the Baker-Hamilton Commission, it's five and five, Republicans, Democrats. I think if there's uh, uh, ever a time when the country needs some kind of decent resolution of a situation, it's, it's, it's over, over the Iraq war. And I think uh, uh, President Bush showed remarkable flexibility, if you will, uh, in dumping Rumsfeld. Uh, uh, he was a major target. Uh, I think it would, I, I saw somebody on TV saying, if you know, if he'd done this a, a week ago, we would have saved ten or fifteen seats in the House and maybe the Senate. Oh well, uh, um, but nonetheless, better better late than never. Uh, um, you know, across history, when we get in a foreign policy crisis, uh, wise men and these days wise women sit down and and, and try and figure it out. And the extremists on both sides and their own parties and true believers hate them. And the country uh, generally rewards them with uh, monuments and plaques and buildings named after them. Okay. I, I, in the short term, at least, I think the Democrats are going to sh- um, finally have a chance to say what they stand for. So uh, we'll probably see some uh, uh, bills that are going to go in front of uh, Bush, uh, like minimum wage, which has overwhelming support in the electorate. Um, uh, and health care reform uh, of some sort. So, and I don't know what's going to happen there, if, uh, if Bush is going to veto, if, uh, um, if Bush will work with the Congress, will they try and sit down and, and work out compromises? I guess the tone is going to be set by these issues that the Democrats are going to want to put their stamp on and whether or not the Republicans are going to try and co-opt those issues and say, oh, no, we're for those things too, and say Democrats really don't stand for anything. So, um, I, and once we get past the initial 100 days or whatever it will be um, where the Democrats lay out their agenda um, finally because they haven't been able to do it for many years, uh, then I think that's the, the chance of whether or not we're going to have um, bipartisanship. But I, I think in the short term we're probably not going to have um, this agreement. Everybody's going to say we're going to agree on these things, but the Democrats haven't had a chance to put their, initi- uh, their policy agenda forward. Um. I would say that a lot of it depends on how 2008 plays out. Um, 
if the parties, both parties, are just focusing on trying to score points um, in the 2008 race, um, then the actual policymaking may may get set aside, uh, and you'll see symbolic things which don't actually mean much. Um, And I also think a lot depends on the president and how he changes his approach. Um, He's not been somebody who has done much of reaching across the aisle, at least since the early part of his term, his first term. Um, So I think a lot is still, 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 uh, is still totally unknown. But those, I think, are the two key factors. Uh, One quick point. One of the questions will be whether the people who advise people running elections, that is, are there moderates in the middle that can be persuaded and need to be appealed to, or is it really a base election where what the whole point is to get your people that you expect to vote for you to the the polls? We'll have to see. Uh, One more. The gentleman with the microphone was back where it was, and then we'll, we'll go have some lunch. Uh, it's my understanding that uh, there's a large number of Senate Republicans who are up in 08. And I'm wondering, given the trends and the patterns that you've seen in this election, how that plays out for them in 08. I actually uh, <laughs> so focused on 06. I haven't looked at the 08 list yet, so I'm a little bit behind here. <laughs> um, uh, I think a lot depends on how impervious this red-blue dynamic is into the future. Just the way the Senate's created, if you look at the red states versus the blue states, um, there should be a natural 60-vote to 40-vote majority for the GOP in terms of, uh, you know, if all the red states voted for two red senators and all the blue states voted for two blue senators. Um, And I don't know, and obviously that can only be accomplished over time because there are long-serving incumbents who are very popular and no one's going to run against them. Um, So structurally, if the red-blue dynamic continues to be as it was, say, in the 2004 election, then the Democrats are at a long-term disadvantage. If that begins to break down a little bit, and I'm not sure if it is or it isn't, um, that could certainly open things up for a little bit more switching around. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, in 2004, uh, in a very close election, uh, uh, George Bush carried 31 states. Uh, again, the popular vote and the Electoral College just are, are somewhat at, at variance on this. So there's a, there is a natural Republican gerrymander on the Senate, at least, at least in terms of contemporary politics. Uh, uh, so I think – and, and there's a center-right country. So I think that the Republicans have a lot to be optimistic about if they can uh, – get themselves back on a track more oriented towards uh, homeland security and national security and away from uh, more uh, avant-garde ways of looking at the world. The one thing I would follow up is that um, if you look at – I haven't totally digested the the, uh, figures from this year yet, but in the past few elections where redistricting in the House has been so gerrymandered, um, there have uh, you know, historically been very, very few seats that actually were truly competitive. They're like 35 out of 435. Um, and most of the races are just won by one party or the other, and there's not much competition. Um, f- uh, because you're talking about in the Senate full states, which aren't districted, um, they've been a lot more competitive in the past few cycles. Uh, uh, if you look at the percentage of the seats up that are competitive in the Senate, it's been much, much higher than the House. So because it's a statewide electorate more diverse than a single House seat that can be drawn, um, Senate seats have been much more competitive for both parties 
Um, so that's a bit different than it is in the House anyway. And on that point, I'd like to draw our forum to a close. I'd like to thank each of our panelists for their insights today and coming here and uh, talking about the elections. And I would like to invite everyone upstairs, remember to take a look at the marketplace of democracy or the fallacy of campaign finance reform as you go upstairs. Uh, And uh, I'd like to invite you all upstairs to lunch. Thanks very much.